Okay, so thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, be here and share from the Word of God this morning. Uh, we'll be in Haggai, and I love the I love the picture because ultimately that is that is what we're talking about here. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to be here and share from your Word. Father, I pray that you could give me the words to speak this morning; that it would be your words and not my own. Father, I pray that this time could be edifying to everybody here. And that we would use it to bring glory and honor to your name. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Haggai, it's in the minor prophets, uh, but let us not think of it as minor because of its content. It's minor because it's small. It's a small book. Uh, it's between the two Zs, Zephaniah and Zechariah. Um, I don't know. For me, it's 962, but that doesn't mean anything to you, the page number. Uh, so while you're looking for it, now, the book of Haggai, it's, it's, it's in historical context of it is large. So let me spend a little bit of time kind of giving you the setting because it's going to be, it's going to be challenging to really understand uh, what the, the Jews here in the book of Haggai are going through without understanding um, the time that this book is written. So let's go all the way back to Moses. Um, and I'm going to be jumping all around during this introduction. So if you have notes, you got pen and paper, uh, write it down. And, um, and then afterwards, I pray that if you have any questions, you could, uh, you could ask me. So back in the book of Leviticus, uh, written by Moses, there's a specific list in chapter 18 of uh, some specific sins that God said that these are horrible things, that if you do them, the land is going to vomit you out, is the phraseology of it. And this, this phraseology is important because in the future, you see about 800 years from that, that is actually what happened. Um, it's not that they were just forced to leave. It's not that they were led away. Uh, you actually could say that the land vomited the people of Israel out. Uh, so fast forward after Moses, you had the, the time of the judges, about roughly 400 years. Then after that, you had the time of the kings, about another roughly 400 years. Um, so when the time of the kings started out, Israel was a great godly people. Um, and then shortly thereafter, they split into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Now Israel in the north, they went apostate almost immediately. Uh, Judah in the south, though, they had a series of revivals. They had a series of godly kings that came in, um, but they were steadily marching down that path of apostasy um, over the course of their 400 years. Now, one of the specific sins that Moses wrote about way back in Leviticus was by um, that the people were forbidden to sacrifice their children, to have them cross through the fire, to sacrifice their children to the demon Molech was his name. Um, and that's, that's a horrible, horrible thing that the, that the pagan nations did. But we see the nation of Judah, not only did they commit this sin, but even at the highest levels, the king, Manasseh, actually was doing that himself. He sacrificed his children to this demon. So then when it came time for the land to vomit them out, um, they had already completely turned over and left God. So the nation that was uh, the, the empire that was in charge of the world at this time 
it was the, the Babylonians. So they go through and they conquer the entire country, leaving Jerusalem, the capital, and they surround it. And the false prophets were going and telling the people that, they, that God is saying, fight, fight, fight. And you know, we, we as men, we, we would love the opportunity to fight in a case like that. We wouldn't want to surrender. And so, you know, we have a tendency to, to hear what we want to hear and then kind of disregard the rest, right? And so that's what they did. They fought and they fought hard. They fought very well. God's prophets, though, was saying, no, this time has come about because of you, because of your apostasy, surrender and live. But that's not what the people listened to. They fought. So when it came time for the Babylonians to actually conquer the city of Jerusalem, it was devastating. The entire city was destroyed. And the people that were carried off into exile, there wasn't very many left. Um, of the entire nation of Judah, it was just tens of thousands is all that was left that was brought into exile. So that, that idea of the land vomiting them out, that is what actually happened. Uh, so... Fast forward then 70 years of exile, and it was, it was told in prophecy that that's how long the exile would be, and that is. So they were brought back. And then when they came back, you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the temple. And when they first came back, they really got to work. But there was a lot of opposition to their work. There was uh, the nations that, have, that had come in and are uh, the people that had come in and filled the land while they were gone. They didn't want to give the land up easily. So there was constant threats and rumors of war to the point to where while the, the Jews that were returning from exile, while they were building, they had to work with a sword in one hand and a trowel and hammer in the other. When they were resting at night, they couldn't just go to sleep. They had to be on guard duty like soldiers. It was, it was a time of, of horrible, horrible opposition and persecution. Now, it's tempting to say that they were doing something wrong, right? That they should stop because God is punishing them because they're doing something wrong. And somehow, in, in modern evangelical circles, that is the narrative that has sort, of, uh, sort of come in. It's, it's a form of uh, prosperity gospel, so to speak, where, you know, if you're in the Lord's will, then everything should be easy and comfortable, right? Uh, but we see here in this story that it wasn't. They were working and they were working diligently for the thing that the Lord had assigned them to do. And the opposition was immense. But eventually, uh, the, the people that were opposing them, they wrote a letter to the king. At this point, it was the Persian empire that was in power. And this letter, it, it said something like this. It said that these Jews are a rebellious people. And they're wanting to rebuild the wall and the temple so they can rebel against you. If you allow them to do this, then they're going to rebel just like they always have. So then the king of Persia, he said, okay, stop the work. Let's investigate this. Now, 14 years later, the work has not picked back up. And that's where we are now in the book of Haggai. So let me start. Verse 1 and 2. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltel, governor of Judah, 
and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, this people say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now notice the, the phraseology that's used there. This people, those people. Now my son can testify to this. When, uh, when he's being a little, when he was younger, he's, he's outgrown this now. When he was younger, he would be a little naughty. And I would call to his mom. I would say, Lindsay, your son. Right? Now we all can, can see that. That's, that's something that's common that we all do. It doesn't mean that I've disowned the boy. And it doesn't here mean that God has disowned his people. It's showing that he's, he's frustrated with them, right? You see that? He's frustrated. It's, it's an impersonal way to passively talk about your frustration. They're saying the time has not yet come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So they didn't say that they weren't going to do the work. They just said, it's not yet. It's not time yet. Now, if we were to go back in time, and, and sit with these people. They could give us, in, in a human sense, some stories that would be just gut-wrenching. I mean, just imagine for a minute, um, you're, you're seeing an interview on CNN with somebody, and they're sitting here talking about, my entire nation, my entire people are destroyed. My, the entire language group of the Jewish people destroyed, taken into exile. They would talk about how there's not a single building left standing in the city. So why is it that I have to build the temple first, right? Imagine that. Imagine the, the human suffering that they could talk about, that their grandparents and their parents had gone through during the exile. And they themselves had gone through while they were in Persia and Babylon. So they could give in a human sense some very, very good reasons for having set aside the work. But God is annoyed at it. He doesn't look at the, the human part of it in the same way that we do. Let's go down to verse 3 and 4. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie in waste? Now, don't get confused about that term sealed. What that's talking about is it's, it's luxurious. It's not just a basic house that was built here that's being described. It was a house that extra things were added to in order to make it nice and comfortable and luxurious. So when the people set aside God's work, it's not that they found extra time to watch the paint dry. They got busy working for themselves. And it also, it's interesting when you note that they were commanded to do the work of construction, to work on the Lord's house. And they didn't do it, but they were doing the exact same type of work for themselves. And now this, this is hard work, construction, back in the ancient days, especially um, in the, the ruins of this city. I mean, they couldn't just go to Menards or Home Depot and buy their, their power tools and their lumber. You had to actually quarry that stone you had to actually dig up the sand for your mortar. You had to go and carry water. You had to cut down the trees and, and timber them. And it was a lot of work. And so I could understand why they weren't excited to build that temple. But God says, build the temple, right? 
And it takes, you know, my wife and I, we recently were reading a, um, a devotional by Elizabeth Elliot, and she, she mentioned a phrase that, that really stood out to me, and I've appropriated this phrase. She talks about holy sweat, that serving the Lord requires that, that holy sweat. Building that temple was going to take a lot of work. It was going to be a huge hardship, but it's amazing what sort of hardships we're willing to, to tolerate when we benefit from it, right? And that's what the, the Jews here in the book of Haggai are guilty of, ultimately. Not of laziness, but of working for themselves, for their own life, for their own prosperity, rather than simple obedience to what God had commanded them. And... I mean, once again, you, you start looking at the, the hardships that they've gone through. And do you think standing there in front of one of them, you could chastise them for building their house before the temple? Do you think you could encourage them to, to continue to sleep in the tent while they are doing all of that work that they don't benefit from after all of the hardships they've gone through? What this is showing to me, and I hope you see it here, is is that God has a different understanding and a different perspective than we do. For God, simple obedience to what he's telling us is what he asks for. And the excuses that, that we would think are legitimate to set aside simple obedience, he does not accept. His perspective is so much different. Now, I'm not standing here being haughty saying that, that I obey simply everything that's brought before me. That's, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just showing you from Scripture the perspective that the book of Haggai is bringing out. And it's important to understand that the Jews here in the book of Haggai had been through more than we could ever imagine. I mean, right now we're seeing this fighting going on over in Gaza. And you're seeing uh, reels of the war. You're seeing the human suffering and you're hearing those stories. It was worse than that. It was complete and it was worse than that. And God is not saying, it's okay, you guys have been through a lot. Go and rest. He's saying, get to work. Build my house and I will take pleasure in it. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. This is personal here. This is me, James. Which path are my feet on? The way that I am living, the way that I am thinking, the things that I am doing, are they drawing me closer to God or are they taking me further away? Are they... Are the things of my life bringing me closer to the things that I desire, whether it be comfort and prosperity, or are they bringing me closer to God for whatever he has for me? I need to consider my ways. I don't need to get caught up in going around and pointing my finger at other people and trying to consider their ways. We, we need to resist that. This is personal here. Me. My, in my life, how am I living? Consider your ways. Now, verse 8 and 9. 
Let's jump over six and seven real quick. He says, now go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house and I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, says the Lord. So he's telling them just simply go up to the mountain, get the material, bring it down and build my house. Now in missions, when, when I'm meeting somebody that's, that's young and, and they feel the Lord calling them into missions and they want some advice, the number one thing that I can say is if you want to be a missionary, you got to be simple or stupid and stubborn. That those are the two main qualifiers you have to have. You got to be so simple and look at the world so simply that you don't get caught up in how hard it's going to be. You don't get caught up in everything that you're going to have to give up in order to do this. You don't get caught up in all of these big things like I'm going to reach the continent of Africa for Christ in 10 years. You got to be simple and stick to what the Lord has commanded you to do. And stubbornness is vital also. When you serve the Lord, you have to be very stubborn. Because there are going to be a million different things that are brought before you that are more fun, easier, more palatable. You're going to have a million different good reasons to quit and go home. But you have to be more stubborn than those things. Otherwise, you will quit and go home. Whether it's in ministry here or ministry in Africa, I think the same thing applies. You have to look at it simply. And you got to be stubborn to stick it out. And this command that's given here to the Jews in Haggai is a very simple command. Don't complicate it. And in ministry today in the church, it's still very simple. And it reflects this that's given. Think of it as just three simple steps right here. You go up to the mountain. You get the wood. And you bring it back. Now it's, I can't help but see the parallel between this and the command that the Lord has given his church. Now we as the Lord's church are given the sole responsibility to be his proclaimers of truth in this world today. There's nobody else. And here with the Jews in Haggai, this 14, 15 years that have gone by since they quit the work, nobody else came and built that temple for them. Nobody else cared. It was, it was their responsibility. And when they didn't do it, nobody else did it. As a matter of fact, the world thought that they were silly for even attempting to do it. And so for us in the church, being the Lord's sole proclaimers of the truth in this age, Nobody else is going to fulfill what the Lord has given us to do either. I mean, just imagine you, you go to Walmart, right? And you see that they, when you're, when you're checking out, they want you to, to round up to, to give to a charity. How silly would it be if the charity they were giving to was, they say, hey, would you like to round up your bill to help reach the souls for Christ in Pakistan? Could you see that at Walmart? No. Of course not. We're, we're laughing, we're chuckling, we're smiling at that. Because nobody else cares about those things. There are 3.2 billion people in the world right now. 
that are going to hell without a witness. I'm not talking about just 3.2 billion people going to hell. That number is much higher. I'm saying that don't have a witness, that they don't have the ability to tune in to Christian preaching. They don't have a church that they can go to, and most of them don't even have the Bible that they could read if they wanted to. And that is our responsibility in the same way that it's their responsibility to build that temple. Now, I said that it, it parallels it. So go up to the mountain, cut the timber, bring it down and build the temple. The work is to build the temple. Now, Christ, he came and he spent three years in ministry, give or take a little bit. And it says in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was why he came. That was his purpose for coming. And then when his ministry was over and he was leaving, he basically turned to his disciples and said, now go and do likewise. So we see at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, and it was, it was on the previous slide there, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. This is what Christ said as he was leaving. This is the end of his ministry. He came to seek and save the lost. And then as, his, as he was leaving, he told his disciples this. He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So the mission, the job that he gave is to go and teach all nations, make disciples of all nations. And the three easy steps to do that, you go. And I know there's, there's a little bit of controversy in that, that word go. Um, and if you haven't been introduced, and I'll introduce you right now, technically, it's a participle. And for the English teachers that are here, the homeschool moms, you know, participle means going, right? So technically, you could say it means as you are going. But let us not get caught up in that, because I think we all can understand that in order to be going anywhere, you have to first do what? First, go, right? So it's not a mistranslation. It literally says go, and that's literally what it means. So go, therefore, it's assumed that you're going to obey this. Therefore, and teach all nations, make disciples of all nations. The first step is going. Then baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's, that's evangelism, just plain and simple. It's summarizing the process of evangelism. Teaching them to observe everything. I have commanded go evangelize and teach the word of God it's it's simple it's simple but if it's so simple then why are there so many dozens maybe even hundreds of books full books written to try and explain what it means we don't need that let's stick with just the simple the simple part to make disciples of all nations. That is what the Lord has commanded us to do, to fulfill the ministry that he came to do. And somebody much smarter than me, it was 123 years ago, at the Ecumenical Missions Conference in the year 1900. It was put on by D.L. Moody. Now, he wasn't able to attend. He died the year before, but it was his missions conference. 
they calculated it up that in the year 1900, the church in America had the resources, both financially and in manpower, to fulfill the Great Commission in one generation. But it didn't happen. And today it's the same way. We have the resources to, to complete this work, to fulfill this work, but it's, it's not happening at all, not even close to happening. And there's a lot of statistics that you guys, if you're interested, can look up on this, these sort of things. Why? That's the question. Why isn't it happening? So let's go back to, to Haggai. Now we jumped over verses six and seven. Now let's go back to them. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but you're not filled with drink. Ye clothe yourselves, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages, put into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So laziness was not the accusation against the Jews in the book of Haggai. It was they were working. And they were working diligently, and they were working hard, but just for themselves. They set aside the Lord's work, and they said things like, you know, um, I really would like to get my student loans paid off, and then I can serve the Lord. Or things like, you know, my car is getting a little bit old. It's maybe 10 years old now, and I really think I need a new one. And so, you know, after, after I get this new car paid off, then I can start serving the Lord. Or... You know, we, we want another child. And so let us, let us wait till our kids are a little bit older. Then we can start serving the Lord. You, we, they set aside the Lord's work to serve ourselves. You know, before you, you go and serve the Lord, you want your mortgage paid down, right? There's a story that I hear as I travel around. And, I, and I've heard different variations of it. But, but they all kind of are the same. And, and I hear it often. It's usually from a man that's a little bit past middle age. And he says, you know, James, when I was younger, I felt the Lord calling me into his service. And I said, not yet. I said, let me, let me first pay off my student loans. And then I got married. I said, well, let, let me first, you know, educate my kids. Oh, well, now I got to save for college. So let me first, you know, pay off my, you know, save money. To help my kids go to college let me get them graduated and you just keep putting it aside and now he's looking at me on the other side of middle age and saying what can i do and my response is always the same wherever you are at just say yes serve the lord right now wherever you are at don't get caught up in thinking that you have to to go to Pakistan or Uzbekistan or something like that. Serve the Lord where he has you. And now God is working here in the, the Jews' lives in Haggai. He's working to show them that they are on the wrong side, that they are working for themselves instead of him. And he's screaming at them that your problems that you're having the things that you're working so diligently for and they're not working out, you're not satisfied, you're not happy, is because of me. He's screaming at it. He's saying, I am the one doing this to you. Verse 9, you looked for much and lo, it came to little. 
And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is in waste, and you, every man, into his own house you run. God is saying that all of these problems that you're having, you're working towards for all of these things to make your life better, and it's never better. You're never reaching that level where you feel like you have enough. Because I am the one doing this to you, because you are not obeying what I told you. When things get hard, every man runs to his own house. Now, this can be taken in two different ways. It could be that when things are hard, every man looks to his own house to take care of first. You know, it's kind of like that idea um, when you're young, you say, you know, I'm going to give 30% of my income to the church. Then you get married and your wife says, you know, 30% is, is a lot more than most people. And I, I really would like to start a family. And so we need a little bit bigger house. So maybe we do 25%. You say, yeah, that's a good idea. So now you're 25%. That's still more than most people, right? Then it's like, well, you know, we have another kid. So we need an addition on the house here. So 20%, that's still a lot more than most people. It could be that, that when things get hard, every man looks to his own affairs, right? Or it could literally be when there's opposition, you literally run home and hide from it because that's more comfortable. I think either way fits with the story that's going on here in Haggai. The men were not serving the Lord. They were serving themselves. They were serving their families instead. And God is saying, once again, consider your ways. I am the one that's causing that, that discontent in your life because you're not serving me. And now this is, this is James's opinion. So if you disagree, then just completely blame me. Don't blame God for this. But I feel like as a church, and I'm talking church with the capital C, the, the body of Christ throughout America, the we are not serving the Lord in the way that he has told us to. And so we are not experiencing that spiritual blessing that we would have otherwise. God is God, whether it's Haggai, Matthew, or Revelation. It's the same God. And so let us look to that simple obedience. Verse 10. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. So God is putting this on all of creation around them to try and get the message out. In verse 11, And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon the labor of their hands. God is trying desperately to get their attention. And I believe that he's trying to get our attention too. Now, it's verse 8. Let's, let's jump back. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Our simple obedience brings glory to God. When we work with our hands in the way that he has commanded us to do, that brings glory. Now, it's for them here, it's a simple matter of the allocation of their resources. Some men need to go up and cut the wood. 
Some men need to take their oxen and bring it down. Some men need to work to mill. Some men need to be digging in the quarry. But everybody needs to be all in. And in the, the secular world, they recognize this truth that we as a nation, America, if we didn't recognize this truth, our grandparents anyways, we would all be speaking German. When it came time for World War II, we as a people went all in. Grandma digging up her yard for a victory garden so that she didn't have to, to take resources that could be sent to the soldiers. Grandpa getting together with his friends to put their money together to buy war bonds to help feed and send bullets to the soldiers. Dad holding off on maybe getting a new car so that he could help his kids and us also sending our children to go fight. We as a nation, we recognized it and we went all in on that. Defeating the Nazis in World War II, it was the allocation of resources. And, and don't get just caught up when I talk about resources of thinking I'm talking about money. Yes, it, it takes money to fight a war, but it also takes a lot of other things. It takes men and women, it takes soldiers, it takes Joes on the front line carrying a gun. And even in the army itself, not everybody carries a gun. It's, it's one in six. For every one soldier out there with a gun, there's six back that have to do the laundry and feed and do maintenance on the vehicles. That that's the way that the army works. And we as a church are the army of God. We're put forward. We see that in, in 2 Timothy, that we are, we're soldiers out there. And we all have different parts to play. Wherever the Lord has us, the faithfulness right there, where our feet are is what we're called to do, but we need to be all in. And we talk about an allocation of resources. Now, I talked this morning in Sunday school about time. And you know, when we're on the field, that that was the hardest thing to adapt to, was giving up our time and thinking differently about time. But there's other things too. You know, the, you guys read our, our updates. We've had a lot of, uh, of health problems and you know, my back being out and, different bouts of malaria that I've had and things like that. And it, it's, it's hard. It's hard. But when I have health problems, that, that's hard enough. But when I look at my family and the health problems that, that they have, you know, my wife, her, her liver went into failure two times because of the malaria medicine that she was taking. And I see her writhing on the floor, having a liver attack. And that's, that is hard. We're 14 hours from a hospital. What am I going to do? You know, she's going through this because of where we're at and what we're doing. My youngest son, he had malaria really bad um, to the point where it was attacking his liver. And then the malaria medicine that he took made it even worse. And so he was having the same problem and there's nothing that we could do about it. My oldest son, he had uh, drug resistant typhoid. Took him two years to get over. He lost 30 pounds. You know, it, as we're going through this, it's hard to watch. And I, I cry out to God, like that song says, you, know, you didn't say it was going to be easy, but does it have to be this hard? And I hear him tell me, I hear it. That in Hebrews 12, it talks about look to Christ 
who endured so much hostility from sinners. Why did he endure so much hostility? It's because of me. It's because of my sin that he's up there on that cross dying like that. And then the very next verse, it tells us, and be comforted because you yourself haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding your own blood. So I'm supposed to be comforted by this. And I realize that it's not about me. Giving up my health is a big thing, right? That's just, that's just a resource. My time is just a resource. Money is a resource. We all possess these things. But what the Lord has shown me, and trust me, I'm still growing in this. And just, just ask my wife and she'll tell you how much I, I complain. All right? I'm not up here being haughty. I'm not. But this is a truth that I have learned. That when we're talking about resources, we can't look at the individual pieces. We can't look at our time, our money, or even our health, as big as those things are. The Lord has grown me to understand that the resource is me. That I am a resource to spend and be spent in his service. And that's what these men here in the book of Haggai, that's, it doesn't say it, but that's what they had to realize also. The work is hard and it's big, but we as his church, when we can grow in our understanding of this, that I am the resource and not think of it in terms of how much of my money can I give, how much of my time can I give, but it's me. If, when we can go all in, total war, where the men can raise up their children for the Lord's service, to send them out in service, where the grandmothers can dig up their front yards to plant a garden, to have a little bit more money, when the grandfathers can go and gather up their group of other men to, to pray and to help finance some sort of work that the church is doing or the church itself. That total war, that seeing ourselves as the resource to spend and be spent, that is when we will be able to fulfill this work that the Lord has called us to. That now, 2,000 years later, we're sitting here and we are very well equipped to do this. But just like it was for the men in Haggai, for us also, it's just a simple matter of the allocation of resources. Are we willing to live like that? Let's go back to Haggai here, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. So they obeyed because they feared the Lord. Now, this isn't the kind of fear that we talk about, you know, children hear a bump in the closet. This is that grave reverence. It's a reverential feeling that you, that you can feel the weight of upon you. And when we are confronted, with the majesty of the creator of the universe, how big he is and who he is. And we see that he's speaking directly to us. When we're confronted with that truth and we believe it, 
then the proper response is just like what they did here. They obeyed. The proper response is just simply to say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's it. And we recognize in our culture that there is a proper response, just like there's a proper way to dress. There's a proper response for certain things. I mean, just imagine for a minute, you're standing on the West Coast and you're watching the most beautiful sunset that man has ever seen, the way the colors are dancing across the sky, and you're just in awe. And then somebody comes up behind you and they start clapping and hooting and hollering in your ear. I can see from your faces, like, oh, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. We understand that when we're confronted with things that are bigger than us, that transcend us, there is a proper response. And this is another Jamesism. So if you disagree, just blame me. Don't blame God here. I think that this goes a long ways into why we don't obey. Because either we don't understand this, we don't see who God is in his majesty and what he's asked of us or commanded of us, or we don't believe it. Because I guess I have a hard time seeing how you can truly recognize that, to be under the weight of that, and then say no. It's a similar thing, you know, maybe we just, we don't think about it. It's a similar thing to that question. When, if God was sitting in that seat next to you, would you have sinned the way that you did? And obviously we say, no, we wouldn't have. But we know that God is there. It's like that. Yes, sir. That simple obedience to wherever the Lord has us, let us be faithful. Let us go all in and serve him with our entire being. And that is when we will see this work go forward, just like they were able to build the temple there, the hardships that they went through to do it. It is going to be hard. It is. We see Christ in his ministry, what he went through. The same Lord that says, I love you, also said that if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. And if you lose for life, your life for me, then you keep it. That same Lord said they hated me first. They're going to hate you. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep to the slaughter. There's nothing about ease and comfort in Christ's ministry. There's nothing about it in the ministry that he sent us to. It's living with that idea. And this is another, another thing that I appropriated from Elizabeth Ellen. I've read a lot of her devotionals. Heaven's not here, it's there. Living our life with that understanding. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and share from your word this morning. Father, I pray that, that everybody could understand that, that this is your word and not me. That, Father, that we were able to edify everybody here. And Father, I pray that, that we would bring glory and honor to you as we serve you wholeheartedly moving forward. Father, I pray that the message from Haggai today could sink into the hearts and souls and lives of all of us, and that we could say, yes, sir, just like your servants here in the book of Haggai. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing 
on the rest of our day and to keep us safe until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank James and Lindsay and Esther for joining us this morning. It's wonderful to have fellow soldiers, fellow gospel workers to be able to encourage us and be encouraged by their faith. I was reminded by what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 1, where he said, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And so thank you for finding your way to us in God's will and encouraging us with your faith. And may our faith be an encouragement to you as we enjoy this one day of fellowship that we get. And we look forward to the future times where God will bring us together as well. Well, church, you have a will to work. God has given each one of us a ministry, a spiritual gift. We all stand before him and give an account for how we have done the work that he laid out before us. It's a good reminder for me. It's a good reminder for each one of us. There is purpose. There is joy. There is blessing when you say yes to the work of the Lord, even though it will be difficult. That's where the glory is in overcoming the difficulties and being that stubborn, persistent soul that continues no matter what.